So here now, at this point in Exodus chapter 12, we finally arrive at the last plague, the worst of the plagues. One of the things that we've noted as these things got started is that there's a kind of ratcheting effect, which with each and every plague, it just kind of gets worse and worse and worse. And Pharaoh is warned, and he hardens his heart, and it doesn't go well. And so finally, the 10th plague is announced, the death of the firstborn. We spent a lot of time making our way to this point, and now this morning we get to read about the very last plague. With all of the buildup to this moment and the explanation of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the description of the plague itself is actually very quick and very devastating. It's surprisingly short, the actual description of the moment of this night. But this Passover night, by the time we are done with this chapter, by the time we are done with this, God's people will be free. God is building a nation And he is continuing in this passage of scripture to build people in his image. We're using this idea that he's taking them out of Egypt, but as he does so, he's also taking Egypt out of them. They are no longer to live that way, to live in a way that is formed and shaped by God and who he is. So God will save his people from the evil culture that is around them, the one that has enslaved and oppressed them for a very long time. But God's people are not allowed to become like them. The Hebrew children, they have one, the one true God as their Lord, and this is going to mean an entirely new way of life. Even in our passage this morning, I think it's gonna surprise us how that theme makes its way through. Money and valuables. What does that mean? How are they used? Why does God give them to his people? The value of human life. If you were to just read through this passage of scripture, pieces of it might be a little bit difficult to comprehend, but when we see it through the lens of what is the value of a human life, how does God want his people to see them? I think it helps make sense of what's happening in this passage. What law looks like amongst God's people. Resentment. Hate, bitterness, all of these things are being dealt with by God as he frees his people from Egypt. So in our passage of scripture this morning, here are some of the thoughts that are just kind of give us a sense of what's happening today. First of all, we are at the final plague. The Lord kills the firstborn, and there is a great wailing in all of Egypt. It's just kind of overwhelming how quickly and devastatingly it is described. The result is what God told Moses would happen. And in fact, by the time we get there, Pharaoh will expel the people of Israel out of Egypt. He's tried to hold on to them. He's refused God. He's stood up to God. And now he expels them out of the land of Egypt. So Israel then leaves Egypt. We're finally at that point. We've reached this moment. The slaves are now free and they are going to be on their way to the promised land. God has told them in the previous passage of scripture, here's what's gonna happen. I'm gonna free you. I'm gonna take you to the promised land. It's just a given. But as they go, we get this little note again. They take the wealth of the Egyptians with them. It's such a fascinating piece of how this story unfolds. And then again, because of the importance of this night and how incredibly overwhelming this night is, 
The Passover meal is reinforced. It's described in greater detail for us. So on the heels of this dramatic night, God tells them again, you're going to remember this night. Here's how you're going to remember this night. And then in this passage of scripture, he's gonna tell you, here's who will remember this night with you. It's interesting how God continues to explain the importance of the Passover to his people. So let's begin reading this passage of scripture. We're in Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 29. And friends, this is the word of the Lord. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And he summoned Moses and Aaron by the night and said, up, go, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. In one verse, possibly two, depending on how you want to look at it, we're told the extent of the death in the land of Egypt. God has warned and God has warned. He's told Moses, tell Pharaoh, let my people go so they may serve me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh refuses and refuses. And God shows himself to be greater than every power, than every divinity that Egypt has. God is greater than. He's warned this over and over. And finally, this night has come. Everyone is affected. It's described again very briefly, but very effectively. From Pharaoh in his palace surrounded by his court and his guards, to the slave or the, uh, the, the prisoner who is in the dungeon, to the livestock itself, the firstborn died, and there is wailing in every single house in Egypt. We see again in the 10th plague, one of these themes that's been going through all of the plagues of Egypt, and we called it early on the, the battle of the gods. And God has said a few times, and will say again, he showed himself to be superior, more powerful than everything and everyone the Egyptians worshipped. And so all of these plagues deal with those gods, and God overwhelms them, and he overwhelms the priesthood, and he overwhelms everything Pharaoh has the power to do. And now at this point, we've reached that pinnacle. The man on earth who is viewed by the Egyptians as the son of the God worshipped as such. He sees himself as such. And so his firstborn is going to be in that line and he will be seen as, revered as the son of the gods. And in one night, he's gone. So God continues to show himself greater than, more powerful than anyone in anything that Pharaoh could use to rise up against God and control the people of God. So Pharaoh gets up in the middle of the night, and I believe part of the imagery inside of this passage, and it, it causes, I think, to sort of put ourselves in this position in the middle of this night, no matter where we are in Egypt, 
In the middle of the night, the wailing begins. Household by household, indoors and outdoors, it doesn't matter where you are. You wonder if it was the wailing itself that woke up Pharaoh. And he finds his firstborn, probably his firstborn son, dead. The great cry of death. It's interesting in the passage of Scripture, the way it is spoken of, the way it's dealt with. When he says there's a great cry or a wailing in all of Egypt, that term has been used a couple of times before, earlier on in the book of Exodus, when God talks to Moses and he says, I have heard the cry of my people. One of those passages is in Exodus 3, 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. So the people of God have been wailing. They have been crying out to their God for a very long time. And now on this night, it is the Egyptians' turn to wail. Egypt has enslaved, brutalized, and killed multitudes. And the slaves have cried out. Now because of the Passover night, it is the Egyptians who wail because of the death. These things are weighty. These things are sometimes a, a little bit difficult to walk through in Scripture and make sense of. And yet we have seen the injustice, and God has seen the injustice, and he has warned of it, and finally now the moment has come. And friends, there's an important thought here, that the people of God, we need to keep our eyes on it. And I believe the plagues are teaching us this. Amongst everything else they're teaching us, they're teaching us this, about the world, pride and rebellion, and the justice of God. Friends, the world in its pride and rebellion believes it has the upper hand on God and on God's people. God's justice, however, will prove them horribly wrong. The people of God, we need to keep our eyes on this because there just are those seasons, those times, when the evil that is in the world, the rebellion that is in the world and in the hearts and minds of those who do not follow Jesus Christ or who are actively against Jesus Christ and his church, it feels overwhelming. And the world is constantly concocting ideas and arguments and worldviews and structures in which they believe they have finally conquered the idea of God. We have finally gotten rid of him. We now have enough knowledge. We now have enough power. We now finally have that argument that proves that God does not exist. The world in its sin and rebellion always thinks it has the upper hand on God. And that also means the world believes it has it the upper hand against God's people as well. But as we watch God take care of his children in Egypt and free them, the justice of God will out. This is the hand and the power and the glory and even the love and the care of God. His powerful and glorious hand at work on behalf of his children. So this is the moment that breaks the will of Pharaoh. So he finally just tells Moses, he summons him still in the night. He says, get out of here as fast as you can. Take everybody with you. 
take your livestock with you. You've been saying you want to leave with everyone and everything and go worship your Lord. Just go do it. And isn't it interesting at the very end of that, and he goes, and then pray for me. Isn't that interesting? And remember, throughout these plagues, as, as Pharaoh has dealt with Moses, and especially as the plagues were getting worse and worse, and we're hitting the last three or four plagues, Pharaoh begins negotiating with Moses. You may remember some of that. He says, all right, you know, a few of you can go, and you're going to leave the women and the children. You can go, but leave all of your livestock. And Moses keeps saying, that's not the deal. The deal is we are all leaving. And now at this point, that's exactly what Pharaoh says. No more negotiation no more thinking, I think I might be able to figure out how to get around Yahweh himself. There's no more of that. It's just take everyone and go. As much as we talk about the reality of the justice of God in the face of sin and rebellion, there's something else that is important about this night in the way it's told in Exodus and the way it's remembered in the rest of the Old Testament. Friends, there is no record of divine pleasure in this night. There's no record of the celebration of the Israelites at the death of the multitudes in Egypt on this night. God is freeing his people, and they go. God is training them. There's this fascinating passage in the book of Ezekiel. Smack dab in the middle of that book, one of those books that rarely makes its way into our evening devotionals. But as God speaks through his prophet Ezekiel in chapter 18, listen to what God says here. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed, and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. This is the God of the Old Testament speaking about his word toward those that he wants to turn, live in his kingdom and his way of life, and they will live, he says. The apostle Paul, later on, when he talks to Timothy, he says, the patience of God is shown in me, the worst of all sinners, that I am now a child of God. It is by the patience of God that the kingdom, the full kingdom of Christ, waits and waits so that we may be saved. And yet the judgment of God is always just. An entire nation an entire culture caught up in their sin has reached a point of cleansing and of judgment. God will remove his people. God will save his people. God will free his people from that sin and from that wickedness, and he will judge the evil. This is how God works when his spirit, when his hand, when his power falls. He saves the repentant and he judges sin. 
We may feel at some points like, well, man, the entire nation of Egypt, why not just Pharaoh? As we've been reading through this entire drama, those are the characters that we've been dealing with. We've been dealing with Pharaoh and some of his court. And we may think, well, Pharaoh's the problem. Pharaoh's the problem. But we have to stop and reflect about the culture the Israelites live in. We go back to Exodus chapter 1. Pharaoh was able to command the people of Egypt to take newborn infants from their Hebrew slaves and throw them in the Nile until they were dead. That's the culture that Israel has grown up in. So there's something about the structure of the nation of Egypt that is being judged by the hand of God. Friends, I don't think there's a way for us to escape the question. What happens to a culture that celebrates the sins that our culture celebrates? We can't just talk about the influential individuals, those who have political or economic power, whatever it is, who, who push this or that. I think there's something about this that you and I understand that there is just a growing set of structures in our culture from top to bottom that are celebrating and pushing sin and rebellion and debauchery. From abortion and sexual depravity and abuse, friends, there are parts of our culture that are celebrating and pushing and funding sexual abuse. Hatred in our culture has even decided, let's resurrect racism. Does the God of judgment see that? What will he do? What will he do? So I don't think we're allowed to be shocked at the entire nation of Egypt being touched by judgment. A few moments of reflection, we realize, oh, this, that's, this is what that looks like. This is what that looks like. But because of this plague on this night, and this conversation now between Pharaoh and Moses, the morning dawns and Israel will be set free. So let's keep reading this passage of Scripture. And some of you are thinking, I hope this gets happier before we're done. Exodus chapter 12, verse 33 the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. Well, given that night, that makes sense. For they said, we shall all be dead. For the people, so the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks and on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold and jewelry and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have whatever they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. Let's keep reading. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Friends, the number is just amazing, right? A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves." 
time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on the very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. So the Egyptian people now are urging the Hebrew children to leave. If these plagues continue to get worse, we are all going to be dead. This is too much. This is too much for us. And so they let the people of God go. Even then, even then with that sense amongst the Egyptians, God grants them favor with their Egyptian neighbors and they leave with their wealth. It's an incredible thing. And then this mention of the unleavened bread. We've read the description. God begins the feast of unleavened bread. He tells Moses, here's what you're going to do from now on when you celebrate the Passover for those several days before, for the seven days before it, you're gonna celebrate the unleavened bread. So there's a process, there's a celebration, there is memory built into this. We read about that already, but now we read the practical reality. Their kneading bowls are strapped under their back. They don't have time to let this bread rise. They're being thrust out of Egypt as soon as the sun rises. They don't have time for it. So they get out and the first meal they have is just of unleavened bread. So we read the practicality of it. So the people of God are going to remember this over and over. The practical reality will become a critical part of the memory. And that lived memory is intended to create bonds between the people of God generation after generation with this very night. So we don't just remember what God has done. We don't just recall what Christ has done for us, but we engage in that memory. We work in that memory. We live out that memory over and over and over. There's an interesting dynamic to these two chapters, chapters 12 and 13. Like we mentioned, the actual description of the actual plague is really two verses long. But God takes around those two verses two chapters to say, remember this. Teach your children about this. Here's how you're going to do this. He takes two chapters to talk about the Passover meal and the feast of unleavened bread. It is a nation of people, not a random scattering of disconnected individuals who are leaving. It is a nation that is leaving Egypt. The text says the, the time was 430 years they had lived in Egypt and it had come that night of Passover. The text calls it a night of watching by the Lord. This is a long time to be foreigners to be slaves for a lot of that, to wait for the promise of God. But there's something very precious, I think, about that language. That on the Passover night, it's a night of watching by the Lord. The sense seems to be that God kept his eye on his children in this very devastating night. And so from here on out, it's gonna be a night of keeping an eye on the people of God, of watching for God himself to come and save and free his people. It becomes a night of watching for us because on that night, God watched for us. But the host of the Lord 
It's a great word. God's used it a couple of times so far in Exodus. He calls his people an army. That's what that language means. The hosts of the Lord leave with the plunder of the Egyptians. And the text makes this moment clear. As interesting as it is, Israel is given favor in the sight of the Egyptians. The people who have been, who have enslaved them or who at the very least have viewed them and treated them as slaves for a very long time, suddenly God gives them favor. So I think we have to trust the text and the way the text talks about it at this point. This isn't theft. This isn't borrowing. They're not going to give back. This isn't deception. This is the favor of God upon his people. And they're going to leave Egypt and walk into the middle of the desert looking as good as you could possibly look. <laughs> They're gonna have the earrings and the gold and the silver and the fine clothing, and that's how they walk into the death. This isn't theft, it isn't deception, and this has become a big deal recently, which is why I mentioned it. It isn't even reparations. Reparations would be money paid to them for being slaves or paid to their descendants for being slaves. God intends this wealth for worship, and not for them. Isn't that interesting? This can become part of what they use through the wilderness, but what, what God wants to have happen with the wealth of the Egyptians is the tabernacle will be built. This is why God grants his people wealth. Friends, think about that. Just leave that rolling around in your head for a while. That God intends the blessings he gives his people, even after being slaves for so long, he intends it for its greatest purpose, and that is the worship of the God who freed them. But they do, they leave with resources. They leave with things provided to them by God. Now, part of what's so powerful about these moments is that God is continuing to form and shape his people, and this memory, this memory of leaving slavery with money, leaving slavery with wealth actually shapes part of the rhythm of the people of God. Morally and socially, it shapes them in the way they deal with the people who live among them. I want to read this passage of Scripture to you. I want to spend a couple of minutes on it because these passages sometimes, it's hard for us to sort of put them together and make sense of them. And so we're going to try this morning to see how God is using this kind of moment to shape his people morally. We go all the way to Deuteronomy chapter 15. I've said a couple of times as we go through the book of Exodus, it is very useful to read the book of Deuteronomy alongside it. Deuteronomy is Moses' final sermon to his people before they enter the promised land. And so he reiterates some of the wandering in the wilderness. He reiterates the law. He even takes time to describe this is why it happened and this is what we're going to do. And he calls them to faithfulness. So Deuteronomy is this rich text, especially in the context of us going through Exodus. But in Deuteronomy 15, verses 12 through 15, let's read this passage. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, that can also mean sells themselves to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. 
as the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. A law about slavery. We're going to have to deal with this the further we go through the book of Exodus, but by and large, the kind of slavery that's being talked about here is what we would call indentured servanthood. Someone has found themselves in debt, so they're paying off that debt by binding themselves to someone, so they work for that individual to pay off that debt. Or someone who has found themselves in the land and they are too poor to own and work on the land themselves and make a living, so to speak, so they bind themselves to someone for a while so that they can work for a room and board. This kind of thing is very common in these ancient Near Eastern cultures. But did you notice what God does, even with that kind of economic system? He says, I need you to remember that you were slaves for a very long time. You didn't have a day off. No one lets you go until I let you go, and then I let you go with wealth and material in everything that I gave you. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to create a pattern amongst my people so that every seven years, whoever is working for you, whoever is in that position, you're going to let them go. You're going to have your own little exodus. (laughs) You're not just going to let them go and let them walk out into the street. You're going to give them liberally from what you have. From whatever wealth you have, from whatever flock you have, if it's a wine press that that you run, you're going to give to them so they have something on the other side. Why? Because I want you to remember, you were slaves in Egypt. I freed you. The important piece of this is don't treat them the way the Egyptians treated you. You're being formed and shaped in my image now. We're doing things differently. So this is, in fact, a shocking moral advance that the people of Israel aren't allowed to keep slaves like they had been slaves, but they let them go with their own wealth. God's people will learn to value the lives of those who do not have as much as they do. They've lived in the land of Egypt where they've been oppressed and treated as slaves by every Egyptian, right? That's the notion. But the people of God are learning to value every human life no matter what station of life they find themselves in. Going even further, as this passage continues, God's people will value anyone and everyone who chooses to become a part of the people of God as if they themselves had been slaves in Egypt. There's no difference between them and us. God is going to say, this is radical stuff. There's this great little phrase, and we miss it often when we think about the Exodus or we tell the story of the Exodus. The text says, a great multitude left. We've got these numbers and their herds and their livestock. And you just kind of imagine this massive people making their way east. And the text says, and a mixed multitude went with them. I like the way the New Living Translation put it. A rabble of non-Israelites walked out as well. It's not just the children of Israel. It's everyone who had decided the Lord is God. It's everyone who decided I'm going to observe the Passover, and he has become my God. 
So the idea is, there are other nations enslaved. There are other people enslaved in Egypt. So plenty of other nations may have walked out with Israel. Plenty of other individuals who weren't Israelite by birth but have become a part of the people of God, they walk out of Egypt as well. There are even Egyptians who walk out. Later on, Moses is going to marry a Cushite, an Ethiopian, not an Egyptian, but someone else who has joined the people of God and has walked out of Egypt. There's a story in Leviticus chapter 24 about a family where the father is an Egyptian there in the wilderness. So Egyptians have left as well. There is this incredible theme as early as the Exodus itself that the people of God are intended to be an inviting and a welcoming people of God. If you follow, if you come with us, if you join the covenant, if you obey the Lord your God, you've become one of us. It isn't ethnic, it's about worship, and it's about covenants. So we notice this. Though they were oppressed and excluded, God's people will become a missional community. They've been excluded but they are now being built by God to include anyone who becomes a part of the covenant and worships God. That's powerful stuff. The last person we want in this camp is an Egyptian. But God tells them they're gonna become part of the camp as well. This means that anyone who is willing to join the people of God in covenant and in worship will become full members of the nation of God. That thought helps us make sense of the rest of chapter 12. So with that in mind, let's go to verse 43, and let's read through some of the rest of the story. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. And now what God is going to do is he's gonna talk about who eats of it who doesn't and why. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in the house. You shall not take any flesh outside of the house and you shall not break any of its bones. So that's one of these nooks and crannies that becomes fascinating later on in scripture. When Christ is crucified, none of his bones are broken. And the Gospel of John says, it's because Scripture said none of his bones would be broken. And this is one of the passages that John, the Gospel writer, is referring to. Verse 47, all of the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you, and would keep the Passover of the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, that he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts." So God begins to talk to Moses about who will and will not eat of the Passover. 
the foreigner who is among you. The idea is, is the individual who still worships another God, who is not yet part of the covenant of God's people. Because what he says later on is if any foreigner or sojourner wants to become a part of this, you're gonna circumcise them. This is the covenant that God made with Abraham that now marks them as the people of God. And they will come near. That kind of language is used in scripture, often talk about coming near into the presence of God to worship him. Then they're going to be able to eat of the Passover. The Passover meal is an event that belongs to the people of God through the generations. Its meaning is tied directly to them and what God has done for them. They were slaves and God has freed them. God has saved them. So it means something to them. And it's the boundaries that are put on the Passover that make it meaningful. This is part of the idea. If it can be practiced by anyone for any reason whatsoever, then it loses its meaning, its force, its impact. It's observed by the people of God to remind the people of God of what he has done for them. But the foreigner and the slave can join the covenant and come near. So the Passover is exclusive to the people of God, but it comes with an invitation. It comes with the opportunity for everyone to be a part of this. And guys, this is incredible. And maybe we don't know how to sort of put ourselves in these shoes to feel the weight of this kind of language, but God tells the Israelites, and again, they're just now walking out of Egypt. They've been excluded from Egypt, so to speak, for a very long time. And God says, if anyone wants to join the people of God, they become part of the covenant, they worship me, and they will be just as a native of the land. You're going to draw no distinctions between those of you who can track your genealogy all the way back to slavery in Egypt and those who can't. In the eyes of God, in the eyes of God's people, this is the same group of people. The Egyptians saw you as slaves. You will not see anyone that way. God is taking most of his time forming his people, shaping his people, that they will be different than Egypt. He goes so far as to say, there shall be one law for the native and the stranger. This is another radically counter-Egyptian command. That wasn't the case in Egypt. It will be the case for the people of God. They're being shaped in his image. They will invite and they will welcome They will not draw those distinctions, at least as far as God is concerned. They will actually build a nation, and this is language that maybe we're more familiar with, but it's important because you and I are in direct inheritors of this language. They are intended to build a nation where the rule of law applies to everyone equally. Isn't that interesting? And we inherit that. We don't inherit it necessarily from Locke and Montesquieu, although that's, this is where they got it. We inherit it from Moses and God telling his people, this is how you will live like me with other people. People of God will invite the foreigner in and an incredible thing happens. 
when the foreigner becomes part of the covenant, when the foreigner begins to worship the Lord their God, all of those divisions and all of those oppressions and all of that slavery and all of those hatreds in Egypt no longer exist in the kingdom of God. And he's already telling them this. You were hated and oppressed by a world that is racked with evil. I'm freeing you from that, not so that you can now begin to hate and oppress other people, but so that that does not belong among you. I am building a different kingdom now. You're going to be shaped after me. You will not be shaped after Egypt. Anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ the work of the Holy Spirit begins inside of them to change and form and shape and transform that life into the image of Jesus Christ is just as valuable as anyone else who belongs to Jesus Christ. And in fact, we believe so much in the value of everybody, no matter their station in life, that we are intended to be a gospel preaching, inviting people. Believe in Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins, and in the kingdom of God here, the divisions that the world has created, they don't belong here. Christ doesn't see you that way. The world has put you in little cubicles. It has taught you to hate each other. It has taught you division. It has taught you intolerance. Friends, this is part of the magic of the way our culture works right now, okay? Here again, I'm going to step on some toes and get myself in trouble. But I think this is now why a few of you actually come, just to hear this kind of stuff. The language, diversity, equity, inclusion, tolerance, means nothing but hatred, division, and intolerance. It creates a world in which everyone needs to be put inside of a single box think and say and behave the same way. And in order to control human beings inside of that box, the world creates fear and hatred and anger. So the apostle Paul tells us twice in his epistles, here in Christ, none of those things exist. You've walked out of that oppression. Christ has saved you from that way of life. He says over and over again, we no longer walk in that way of life. We now belong to, we are now ambassadors of a completely different kingdom. Believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, and you're saved. You are free. And Christ actually kills those hostilities. I love this language. In the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul deals with those ethnic and even in some ways gender divisions that exist in the world around him, even in the temple. He speaks to the Ephesian Christians in Ephesians chapter 2. Listen to these couple of verses, verses 13 and 14. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, you were viewed as being worthless less than, have been brought near. Pastor Brooks read a passage like this earlier. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. The blood of the Lamb saved his people in Egypt. The blood of Christ saves us now. For he himself is our peace who has made us both 
one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. There is unity in Jesus Christ. There is this kingdom of God, this peace that only belongs to the people of God, and it is in Jesus Christ. I couldn't resist reading more from Ephesians, that same passage. A couple of verses later, Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 17, speaking again of Christ. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. It's as if this language has been pulled straight out of Exodus. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple to the Lord. That's what this is. This is who we are. This is what the church of Jesus Christ is. This holy temple that's being built stone by stone, day by day, work by work, into a temple that belongs to God, that is holy to him, that exists in this world here and now as a beacon of worship to the one true God. Friends, thinking of all of this in our passage in the book of Exodus, what God is teaching us, part of what he is teaching us is that the solution to the brokenness and the rebellion and the tyranny and the evil of this world is the power of God and the people of God. The power of God that overwhelms all of these other things. The power of God that is greater than whatever the world wants to set up in his stead. God is greater than. The power of God is our answer to all of these things. And then what God does to perpetuate that, to make that real, what God does to make the power of God, the goodness of God, the salvation of God evident everywhere that we go as he builds the people of God. Not that we look mostly like the Egyptians, but that we're learning to look more and more like Jesus Christ everywhere that we go. This is how God is at work here and now. This is what his spirit is doing, revealing his power, building his people, calling others into relationship with him because of the faithfulness of his children.